realizing, because you always hear that, like, everything can change with one play. And for me, everything did change in one play. I just running around that I'd run thousands of times, and then planting, and then all of a sudden something doesn't feel right. It was obvious there were these signs that I was not on the right path, you know, between the grades and the weight and the, all this, all those things. And then when you show up at the Olympic Games, the and you have like thirty or forty thousand people screaming down a tunnel, it becomes a completely different environment. You know, just you can literally feel the energy of everything. All right, so this one's a little bit different today. It's June tenth, two thousand twenty. Coronavirus cases are north of two million. 115. That's 115,000 dead. We've had riots in the streets. We now have large, peaceful marches that appear to be growing day by day. We have two elite athletes: Asante Cleveland, former NFL tight end, podcaster, investor, startup advisor, and Lindsey Dare Shoop, gold medal winner, Olympian, coach, author, and speaker. Focus is on overcoming adversity, similarities to business, life, and across sports. The theme here, the focus of the podcast, is something I've thought about for the last five, six, seven years as I was looking to recreate myself, moving from one career,、uh, banking, trading, this sort of thing, into whatever comes next. I ran across a podcaster by the name of James Altucher. If you haven't seen him, check him out. He's got more than 500 episodes at this point. And the concept he introduced, at least introduced me to, is one percent better per day. If you can improve a little bit each day, then you're well on your way. I'd point you to a couple of really good episodes. Number four five eight, which is Roger McNamee, the billionaire investor, deadhead musician, advisor to pretty much everybody in technology, and he wrote a book called Zucked. So four five eight and four three five are important episodes. He also interviewed Byron Allen, number two.、Uh, pardon me, number four two four. Really interesting look at media. Joe Moglia, number three eighty two, football coach, CEO of TD Ameritrade, and then back to football. A few years back, Altucher did a podcast, and he said something along the lines of, "If someone does two podcasts, and no one will do this because people won't pay attention, they're lazy, this sort of thing. If you do two podcasts, I and my guest will come on your show." Well, this is now number eight, so let's see if we can get him to come around. With that, let's move directly into the interviews. Let me tell you how it's going to lay out. We do a little bit with Asante, some minutes with Asante, then we do some minutes with Lindsay, then we all get on the phone together and talk through the rest of the episode. Here we go. Hi, Asante. I recall a story that I've heard you tell, at least in part, about your first start with the Patriots. I believe it was a night game. Maybe you could just tell us a bit about that in the detail and how you felt and what you were thinking walking、uh, onto the field that day. Yeah, so we were playing against the Houston Texans. They had started to get good late in the season. It was supposed to be a like a regular afternoon game, but they caught. Fire, and so they made it a Sunday night football game. Before the game starts, when we're in the locker room, Josh McDaniels says we're going to start with this play that we had been working in practice. But I was in. That wasn't the game plan going into it. 
And who's Josh McDaniel and what, what year was that? Uh, he was the offensive coordinator in 2015. I realized that once he said we're starting with this play, it's like, oh, I'm about to start in the NFL. <laughs> <laughs> How'd that feel? It, it was good. I was real hyped going into the when we first came out and then they're announcing all the Texans players. But being in uh, that stadium, knowing like, man, I'm about to start my first game was pretty surreal. And then actually walking out onto the field and just kind of taking in the moment, like I'm in the huddle with Tom Brady, Rob Gronkowski, and it's like that feeling of I kind of made it. Like I started the year off in practice squad and now I had worked my way up to starting. Yeah, man. So you're, you're in the huddle. What are you thinking? How do you feel? Are you sweating? Are you, you know, is your heart beating? Uh, of course a little bit, but it was more so that calm resolve of I'm in this huddle because I belong in this huddle. Not I just lucky to be here. It's like, no, I, I earned my way here. They brought me in to do a job and let's just go out and execute this job. My first in that play, I had to cut JJ Watt. Like we were like letting him come free. So I had to cut him. So I had the, the key block on the play as well. And I made it. And so it was just a good feeling of like, I can, I can do this at any level. And so you get back to the huddle for the next play. Yeah. Then what happens? They congratulate you. They say, rookie, you made it. Oh, no, no, no. They they ignore you. What happens? It's not even, it's not even worth talking about it because I'm on the field to do my job. So you're not getting celebrated for doing what you're supposed to do. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. And what else do you remember about that game? Did you win? Did you lose? What do you? Yeah, we won that game. It was actually, I just started playing. That was the first game where I had played a significant amount. I was in a bunch of different packages. Like in New England, like the theory is with like a lot of teams, but especially New England, but like you do your role well, and then they'll give you more responsibilities. And I had started to earn more responsibilities. And leading up into that game, I had probably played like five, 10 plays the games before and then this one i was in for like 20 mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. so it was uh it just feel like that rewarding feeling of like i've been the work i've been putting in is getting noticed and i'm seeing the fruits of my labor right you and i have talked about leadership and overcoming adversity talk to me for a minute about the new england way of doing things versus other teams motivation of the individuals, the leadership, anything that comes to mind? Well, what I will say about New England, all coaches always say that when your most talented players are your hardest workers, then you have a chance to be successful. But that's not always the case. Normally, you have a lot of talent, but maybe they're divas, maybe they're a little more egocentric. But in New England, hands down, Everyone was bought into this. There was no complaining about like tough practices. Everybody understood what it take because when I got there, they were coming off the heels of a Super Bowl win. So it's just seeing that now people talk about championship mentality. These are champions who have adopted this mentality. They, everyone was held accountable. If, if you couldn't do what they brought you in, to do, then they would just get rid of you because they didn't want to waste your time. They definitely didn't want to waste their time. There was a 
accountability was put at a premium. Not necessarily, you didn't have to be the most talented person, but if they could trust you to do what they ask you to do, then you'll excel there. Wow. I'm going to ask you about one more thing, and then we'll close this out for today. I know that you've got a podcast that you've been building and working off for some time. Tell me a bit about it. You know, your, your thoughts there, what's your theme? How has that evolved? What's the name? Where are you going with it? Yeah, it's, it's called the white tiger podcast. Uh, my friend Craig Castelletto, he started it originally. And then I came on as a guest. Uh, we talk about professional and personal growth. He was a detective in New Jersey for 14 years we just talk about like some of the limiting beliefs that we have that keep us confined to these metaphorical cages. And so we interview a lot of athletes and entrepreneurs who have gone through the ups and downs and can share stories on how they overcame and became successful. Just finished up an episode talking about what's going on in the world based off his background as an officer and then my background as an African-American in this country. This most recent episode, we were talking about just what's going on in the world, which we we hadn't done before. Interesting. I want to listen to that. That's the White Tiger podcast available everywhere. What I wanted to do on this call is really talk about not just this call, but when three of us get on is, you know, the overcoming adversity and like the really dark times. Yeah. Uh, I think, I mean, overcoming adversity is a great one. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, talking to a, a rower, they, I, when I think of rowing, I just think of having to strain to get to where you want to go because they're giving it all they got blindly. Like for the most part, there's, I mean, I'm for the most part, there's only one person in the boat who can see where they're going and how much further they have to go. Uh, Well, actually I've never asked you this before. Uh, When did you figure out you had talent and was it, was it that that led you to play ball or was it, I love playing ball and I just so happen to have talent. It was when I first got my offer because I was just playing football just to play football. I had no expectations. I had more expectations for basketball than I did football. And then I got a football offer and no basketball love. That's when I realized, oh, I should probably pay more attention to this. And what that That's feel like? I mean, were you giving up the one you loved for the one that, you know, you had an elite status or what was that all about? It wasn't necessarily giving up what I love. But it was, all right, football is how I'm going to get to college for free. Now let me figure out how I can be the best football player because I got an offer from football without really even putting that much effort into it. How old were you then? It was my junior year in high school, so I was about 15, 16. Or actually, I, I probably just turned 17. Did you know where you wanted to go to college? Before you got the offer, what we, where were you thinking about going and what were you looking at to study? Funny enough, I had like zero. Like, I wanted to go play basketball at Duke. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do either <laughs> at all. Yeah. So I was like, I didn't even realize how, how much of a long shot that was. <laughs> Did they even give you a call? No. <laughs> I was going to Duke's radar. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, 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 uh, but you knew you wanted to go to college, yeah, uh, all along. And I heard, uh, I heard you talk about your dad and big influence of your father in, in life, and and sounds like he schooled you in you know the real important stuff. Definitely, definitely learning about how to carry myself, and then it helped that he had um, he had been through everything that I was preparing to go through. Because he actually played, he went to college on a basketball scholarship at first to Arizona State. And then after his freshman year, he stopped playing. He went to a junior college and played football. They won a JUCO national championship. And then he went to UOP where Pete Carroll was a GA back then. And then he was one of the top 10 uh, defensive linemen in the country. And who did he play for? What year was that? He play, He won a Super Bowl with Cowboys uh, back no, in like '77. No. He was on. Oh, I- so I, wa- I watched him play then. He was on IR for the year. He only played one year in the league, and he was making no money. He's making like twenty three thousand dollars, and his mindset was, "I can make more money putting less strain on my body." So he made twenty two thousand a year on injured reserve. Yeah. What would that comp to today? Uh, if it was in today's standards, he would have been making at least 400. IR today is a 400 kind of number. Well, it depends on what your, your salary is. Yeah, understood. Yeah. But, but yeah. You're going to get on IR, you're getting your sal- whatever your salary is. So net, net, things are up 15, 20 times since 77. Yeah. And then it was kind of conflict. He was, uh, his roommate at the time was Tony Dorsett. And no joke. Yeah. So it was like the first million dollar running back. It was like that, like the first million dollar backfield or something like that. And it was funny. He was like, he was, Tony was making all this money and my dad was making 23 grand. It's like sitting on a trading desk where you're the rookie making $1,200 a month and some guy over there was making seven figures. Yeah. How did Dorsett treat him? By all accounts that he's told me, like he had a good relationship with everyone on the team. But after that year, he he would just his heart was never really in football. He was a basketball player too. And he what he tells me is that he didn't have the right mentor in his ear, uh, like kind of giving him guidance. And it was also Dallas in the seventies. What do you mean by that? What do you think that means? <laughs> I, I know what I think it means. Yeah, I, I it was, it. Well, so he he also. My, I, I should tell you. So my dad is from Fort Worth. Uh, or was. So, you know, I get it. But I just want to hear what you think of it. Well, he told me a story with, uh, I guess it was like the owner of the team or somebody like high up on the team. Apparently there was another guy. His name was Guy Brown. And. I guess him and my dad looked similar and my dad was walking and I guess the owner was like, Hey guy, how are you doing? And then my dad turned around and said, get your, get your N words. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, it's, but it was, it was, it was Dallas in the seventies. He, he originally thought he was going to the Kansas city chiefs. And he he says that if he had gone there, he probably would have been playing longer but he just didn't like um, being from Oakland, California, and then going to Dallas is a big change. I've lost track. Was that Tom Landry days? The coach? Uh, I'm not sure who the coach was, but 
Staubach was the quarterback. Did your dad know he wanted to play ball? He wanted. He knew he wanted to play basketball. My uncle basketball. was yeah, yeah. a good basketball player. His older brother, and he played at UC Davis. And then my dad got uh, recruited to Arizona State as a. I think my dad was a center or a power forward, and he was only like six five. Yeah. So dad exited the league due to injury. Yeah, he hurt his knee going into the season. And then after that, he was, he just didn't want to play anymore. You guys still tight? Me and my dad? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. When you got injured, really good mentor about it or, you know, how'd that, how'd that all play out? Yeah. He was helpful in that, uh, understanding kind of like keeping the spirits up. And I'd gone through injury before I had shoulder surgery my freshman year in college. So I kind of had an idea on like, the whole mental game of uh, coming back from injury. He was more of a resource. He, he was more letting me know like this could, this could be it. And just, just keep a positive mindset moving forward, regardless of what happens. That's important. Yeah. Sometimes to hear that and have somebody you trust. Yeah. He must, he must be, must be, and must have been just incredibly proud. Oh yeah, he, yeah. I'm very fortunate to have someone who had already gone through it, and it made the journey because uh, there was a lot of like ups and downs, like all through college, then first getting to the league, and just having him to talk to, who had been through everything that I was going through. Hello. Hello. Hi. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for doing this. How are you? I'm, you know, not bad. I'm just going to take a little break from writing to have a chat with, um, with you. <laughs> it's a good time to, good time to take a little break too. <laughs> are you in Florida? Where are you? Yeah, I'm in, I'm in Miami beach. I live um, a block from the beach in Miami beach. And I tell you the beaches being closed here, the first eight weeks weren't that difficult, but now it's starting to get a little hard because the water is gorgeous. <laughs> Uh, yeah, one of my best friends lives in the area near you somewhere or another. I mean, he's right in the heart of it. And they seem really – they want to get back out, let's just put it that way. Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting speaking with people from different locations, especially people that are in New York or San Francisco or you know around the world because um, – I don't know. People seem a little more, not as low key here in Miami beach specifically relative to say Sarasota or Jacksonville. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I have friends that live in Sarasota and they said they went to just go look at the Gulf and there were people everywhere because they reopened parks and things like that. Um, I want to say about a week or two ago. Um, but here in the beach are a little more conservative, but people are, you know, it's actually kind of, it's, honestly kind of a nice time to be here because it is more low key. You can actually enjoy being around in the beach rather yeah, than yeah. having it be, you know, just constant tourists. Tourist. And, yeah. And loud yeah. music. <laughs> and loud music. Yep. Yeah. The fellows that I mentioned down there are involved with a couple of restaurants. So I, mm. I part of what I've been doing the last couple of months <clears throat> locked in here is consulting on the CARES Act and, you know, the various loan programs. Yep. And, and that's put me in touch with 
you know, all kinds of people, individuals, small businesses, but restaurants in particular, it's an interesting case yeah. because, you know, hey, there's money around and you know, much of this has been highly publicized, but there's money around to bring people back. But what do we do if, uh, one, the county's still under lockdown and even if the county opens up and we have to take half the seats out, you know, we're not profitable. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, I, I don't I don't own a restaurant, but from what I've seen from the numerous restaurant shows that are out there, I mean, that's all, you know, laid out specifically for a reason. You know, numbers, how many people they can get with it exactly. a certain period of time. It's priced. I mean, are they just going to up their prices? <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Big changes, though. Yeah. Open yeah. Table published a study. I think it was Open Table, yes, of, I don't know, five or 600,000 restaurants across the country. And they're analysis suggests one quarter will not reopen. Wow. Wow. It's a big, it's a big number, huh? Yeah. Yeah. I was on a, um, a call last week, I think it was, and they were, might've been a week before last, they were talking about the number of people that have either lost their job or had a cut on their income. And it was, you know, somewhere around 50% at the time, I think it was. And that was kind of like, wow. <laughs> yeah. 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 So as, as we get into this call with the Sante, mm-hmm. um, you know, I always want to talk a bit about the pandemic and just what life's like. And and then I, I really, of course, want to hear, I'm sure most of the conversation will be between the two of you guys as we get going, but adversity <laughs> and how you overcome it and, you know, all those sorts of things, which I just think is, to me, it's mind-blowing to be an elite athlete and have to deal with the, you know, things that can change on a dime. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, uh, it is really interesting because um, the portion of the, the, the way that I, it actually took me three weeks um, to write the initial draft of my book. And it's a, it's a book that I've been wanting to write for like seven years, more than, more than that. Tell me, more than that. Tell me about it, please. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's my story from, you know, from when I grew up and how I got my Olympic journey and everything. And it actually ends just after the Olympics because there's a whole, you know, I have an idea for a second book that would be the second half of the story, let alone coaching and mental toughness books and things like that, or at least articles for those as well. Um, but the, the book itself um, I wrote the first, I don't know, 40,000 words in, th- in three weeks and sent it off to my editors. And, you know, they were like, this is all really incredibly interesting. Tell us more about X, Y, and Z. And so there were these parts in the middle of the book that I kind of glossed over thinking, well, this isn't what, what people want to hear, you know, because, um, you know, they want to hear about the Olympic stuff and they want to, how did you get into it? And then how did you get to the Olympics? And, and I realized that there were all of these details in the middle that were, that's the bridge. So, okay, this is where you started and this is where you ended, but the bridge is really the important part. And so going through and talking about, you know, why it was that I got into rowing and what kept me going from day to day. And for me, it was a, the full transformative process, um, because it really entered my life at a time when, um, I had been an athlete growing up and then didn't think I was good enough to play a sport in college, let alone past college. So I, you know, so I stopped playing all sports after high school and, you know, I gained 30 pounds, my grades hit, you know, tanked, you know, I was just kind of wondering like, what do I do with myself now that I don't have sports kind of guiding me and keeping me organized and all these things. And then, um, randomly bumped into the college rowing coach when I was at the university of Virginia. And he suggested I give rowing a shot just simply because I'm tall. And, um, Mm. you know, it was an opportunity that he basically presented and every decision after that was up to me. And, and it entered my life at a point where, um, I knew that I didn't want to continue on whatever aimless path that I was on. And so it was like, anything is better than this. So let's give this a shot. Why not? 
And um, rowing is a, an incredibly unique sport. I've, you know, I've played at least a dozen sports growing up and um, it's incredibly unique in that you're always advancing yourself in some way, right? You, you don't necessarily have perfect technique and go fast in the boat, but every day you're mentally learning something, you're interacting with a teammate, you're becoming physically stronger. There's always something that you're learning from, at least um, that's how I went through it, but then that's also how I, how mm-hmm. I coach it, you know? Um, but through... How old were you when you ran into the coach? 20. And you'd already given up on other sports. Yes. You said, I'm not going to play. Yeah, so I... And, and was it just random? You know, you did you know the coach already or was it random? You know, hey, he's the... I met this guy, he's the rowing coach and... Yeah, so he... Um, the University of Virginia, I grew up like 20 minutes from there. And so my mom actually cleaned his teeth when I was young. And he just knew that I was athletic and tall and um, had said to her at some point or another, you know, hey, you know, she might be good at it. it might be something she'd be interested in because rowing was not popular at the time. And there, it, no one knew anything about it, really. And um, because I had played basketball predominantly, that was my main sport. And then volleyball was my favorite sport, but basketball was my main sport. Knowing and looking at those athletes that were playing volleyball and basketball in college, the idea of picking up a new sport and doing that in college was just mind boggling to me. I was like, that's not how it works. And, um, I had met him one time when I was in high school and he said, Hey, if you go to Virginia, you should think about rowing. And of course I laughed it off for the very reason that I just told you. I was like, okay, whatever. And, um, you know, two and a half years at Virginia, went by and I didn't, you know, chose not to row, didn't know, didn't see him ever, never once interacted with him. And then randomly in the fall of my junior year at Virginia bumped into him on campus. And the first words out of his mouth, I kid you not, were, Hey, Lindsay, you know, it's never too late to row. Not like how, how you been? Your mom cleaned my teeth the (laughs) other day, you know, like two and a half years of nothing. And that was the first thing he said. And, and it's, I mean, it's a crazy serendipitous thing of the whole buildup of how he and I even were in the same place at the same time, to be honest. But, um, tell, do tell. Oh, well, yeah, so <laughs> it's, it's kind of funny. Um, they, the way, the location of where we, where we actually met, we were both at a swim meet. Um, I can't, it was the you know Virginia swim teams, annual invitational swim, uh, swim meet. And, uh, the whole setup for it is normally during a swim meet, they would just have the gym functioning as usual. Like the, it's, it was the campus athletic you know, facility where you can, all the students could go there and work out and all this stuff. But um, there was a football game on the same weekend as the swim meet. So they actually shut down part of the, most of the gym, except for the pool. So people were only supposed to be there for the swim meet. Well, in the course of their shutting down the gym, they actually even put up these like white barricades to keep people out of the larger gym space and, um, I was going to go to the football game after the swim meet and I decided I wanted to use the bathroom. So I looked around to make sure no one was going to see me, hopped the white fence, went off into the back of the, you know, lights off, dark, of course you did. Right, dark, the whole nine yards, go to the bathroom. And then on my way out, he had done the same thing and was on his way to use the bathroom <laughs> and, and literally just passed me and, we were the only two people around and he said my name and I turned and I was like, Oh my gosh, someone caught me. I'm not supposed to be here. And, uh, it was him. 
he caught me handing over. Yeah, and and the and what when I backed that up, and I when I was writing the book, and I was going back just to fact check myself on this. Um, the only reason why that whole scenario was set up with the football game being on the same day, so that the two of us were literally the only two people in this location, was because the, it was that was the fall of two thousand one, and um, the football game had been moved. So it was originally scheduled for September 13th of 2001, but because of 9-11, they moved it. Oh, yeah. They moved it to December 1st of 2001, which caused this conflict of the facility use and all this stuff. And so then that scenario without 9-11, oddly, would not have been set up in the same way. Now, we might have been at the same swim meet, but there wouldn't have been that isolated moment of no one but the two of us around. And that stands out in your mind as a very pivotal point, I suspect, because the story tells that way. Yeah. And it sounds like it actually... I mean, yeah. and, the, and the the crazier part, when you back it up, I mean, there's lots of little things that pop up where it's like, wow, the universe was really pushing me in this direction. Um, the night before I bumped into him, I had, like, I I didn't sleep. I woke up in the middle of the night, you know, there were a couple of things that built up to that moment that had happened throughout that fall and throughout my first two years, two and a half years in college, where it was obvious there were these signs that I was not on the right path, you know, between the grades and the weight and the, all these, all of those things that I woke up in the middle of the night and wrote, I kept journals, you know, and I, um, periodically I should say kept journals. And I woke up in the middle of the night and wrote in the journal, this whole thing about how, I should have gone away to school and played volleyball and caught, you know, I should have done this. I should have done that. I wish a thing or two were different. And then in that very next line was, I wish I had done crew, like basically taken him up on this offer two and a half years prior. Lo and behold, the next day I bumped into him on campus. (laughs) So yeah. And have you talked to him about this? I can't remember if I've told him about that particular journal entry Oh, you, have, you know, you have to. Well, I I wrote the entry into the book, so and I and he's read that okay, in part of the it. book. So, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, the first time that I realized that it was it was several years later that I I had kind of put that away because I carried on with the training and everything and kind of forgot that something like that had happened the day before I bumped into him, um, and I rediscovered it before the the first time that I uh, did a. Um, did an event, did a presentation for Johnson and Johnson and, um, was just doing some, you know, reading through my old journals just to rustle, you know, rustle up ideas and ran across that and told them about that the next day. And everybody was just like, you've got like, oh my God. <laughs> have you, have you journaled your whole life? Um, a friend of mine, you know, my parents made us periodically when we did like family trips that were big things. They wanted us to keep and I remember when I was a kid, I had like a diary. I mean, I think that every parent gives their kid a diary so they can maybe secretly read it. I don't know. <laughs> but that's what you see on TV. I did. I remember doing it a little bit when I was a kid. And then I remember doing it again when we had a big family trip and we drove across the country when I was you know, 10 or 12. And then um, I picked it up again after high school. It's, it's actually funny because I love writing now. I've always loved talking. You know, I love radio. I love interacting and communicating. Now I really enjoy writing. I want to say it was, 2000, it was 2001. A friend of mine for my birthday in 2001 gave me a, a, a blank notebook, and that's when I started writing again. And 
Good thing she did, because I probably wouldn't have written down I wish I had done crew. <laughs> so this was three weeks after my This what when I bumped into him, you mean? Well, you said your friend gave it to you. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So I guess... Oh, so no, it was three weeks after nope, 9-11. It was, it, was, it was September, my birthday of 2000, okay. yeah, the year before that she gave me the actual journal. Um, yeah, and so that was kind of somewhere I'd been journaling a little bit um, since then. You know, and an, another line in that same entry was, uh, I wish the thing or two were different, and then... Da, 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 I wish I'd done crew. The world will never know, and that includes me. Wow. Yeah. What was nine eleven like for you? You were 20, uh, right? Let's see. Yeah, because yeah, my birthday was September 25th, or is September 25th, so I turned 20 like a couple of weeks later after after that. I know exactly where I was. I... I, it was the morning before class had started. I had not started rowing at this point, so I was at home, and my dad called me up, and he just... As soon as I answer the phone, he says, where are you? I said, I'm at, I'm at home. What do you mean? He said, turn on the TV. And I said, well, what channel? He said, any channel. I, okay. And I didn't get, you know, I, my roommate and I didn't pay for cable at the time. So it was just oh, whatever we could get. Turned on the TV and it, every channel was the same image, you know, repeatedly. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And, and I... Are they still in Virginia? Were they in Virginia yeah, then? yeah. My family, they, my parents actually still live in the same house that we moved into when I was six weeks old. So they're they're still there. Yeah, Very cool. yeah. I grew up in the country with a bunch of boys. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they taught me to throw hard and the... run fast. <laughs> well, faster than the faster yeah, than yeah. the slowest of them. <laughs> faster than the yeah, exactly. Guy. Does this period now, the pandemic? Well, how does it? feel in your mind how does it relate to you versus 9-11 you know you were old enough to to yeah. absorb 9-11 and now here's another point and as i talk to people and and i've done some interviews with graduating college students and graduate students have lost yeah. their graduations and some high school students and i try to you know always ask them what i've realized is you know there are pivot points mm -hmm. in people's lives for me i had 9-11 mm -hmm. obviously i had the stock market crash of 87 before that and I sense that the pandemic is one of these times. How do can you compare the two, or do you see similarities, or no? I think, what do you think? now, but just because I have a much more mature psychology, having gone through everything with rowing and everything since then, of course. And for me, I'm a, I'm a glass half full type of person. A friend of mine kind of jokingly said to me, I think it was last week we were talking. He said, "What if the whole world went on pause one month every year?" You know, and and it was just one of those things. And obviously that's controlled, you know, so in this, in that isolated instant, you'd be able to control it and go, okay, on this date, everything will be better. And I think that uncertainty is the biggest thing, you know, in my mind, all fears really boil down to uncertainty. You just don't know something. And when it comes to the, the current situation with the pandemic, the reason I say that there is good that can come of it is because people are forced to go slow down a little bit, constantly talk about mindfulness and minimalism and all of that, you know, those things. And yet this is forcing us to do those things that we know from the psychology are actually better for us. And not let alone the environmental, the positive environmental impacts of reducing pollution and all that kind of stuff. But you kind of have this moment of stepping back and reflecting and going, what do I really need? What is most important to me? I think also it's interesting to see what is most important to the world. What has to be in place right now for us to minimally function while attempting to take care of this thing that is impacting the entire world? I would say different from 9-11 is that it was in such an isolated area, you know, the, the actual 
physical impact of everything through what's going on with the pandemic. There are far more individual choices that I think that people may or may not realize actually have an impact. Whereas you know that you're not necessarily going to be a person that would cause harm. You wouldn't intentionally cause harm to someone, but we don't realize that maybe through this, you could inadvertently cause harm to someone else. And so that would be like, in my mind, the biggest difference between the two situations. Like you, you might not realize that going for a run and passing by someone really closely is actually be, it caused them inadvertent harm incredibly mindful of. I think, you know, some of the stuff that we talked about the other night, there are certain technologies that we could put in place, certain physical barriers that we could put in place, but it's really about getting people on board with compliance and common courtesy. I kind of joked a little bit in the beginning of, you know, so this is telling us that we need to practice good personal hygiene, be kind to one another, you know, because when all of the the advice about how to stay safe in this scenario came out. One of you know, the top thing at the list is wash your hands, you know, and then it was, you know, cover your mouth when you sneeze, don't cough. And I thought to myself, my gosh, like, have people forgotten that that is just basic human decency? <laughs> you know, like that's what we should already be doing. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm a caring person. I care for others. And, mm-hmm. and a friend of mine once said to me, no matter what you say, like imagine you're, you're speaking to a group of people you speak to a hundred people, 99 people hear your exact words and take them the way you intend them to. But one person perceives it differently to that one person. What you said is different there. You know, I, I, in that I want to caring for others. If there's a group of people that, that could potentially be harmed because of the activity of the vast majority, I'm one to comply with whatever would help those that can't otherwise help themselves. If that makes sense that, you know, subset of the population. It's like, you know what, if it takes me three extra minutes to get ready to go do something, I'm going to do that. If that is going to help someone else. It's good that you can yeah. take the time. Not everyone has that gene. You know, what I was going to say I'm about sorry, that is that um, in terms of time, it's a prioritization thing. And it's really obviously easier said than done for everyone. But when you identify what is most important to you, you're, you become far more willing to put the time into it, which of course I learned a lot of that through rowing and through my athletic experience. But I, in my career, when I transitioned into, you know, I actually fell in love with coaching. So I started coaching and writing, and now I work with all sorts of people in public speaking and of course the book. And in the course of that, when I first got into it, I was working full-time and in grad school full-time. And so really overextended myself because I had the luxury of being an Olympic level athlete. My job was to recognize any small change in my physical and mental And not everybody, I I tell my teammates, I'm like, Mm -hmm. it's a luxury to understand yourself that well, you know, that your entire focus is to go up. Well, this doesn't feel right. And nope, my brain is not thinking right today. Some people just can't know that when in my career after athletics, I got to the point where I was overextending. I was working a ton, didn't not sleeping enough, you know, all the demands of work that I got to a point where I said, this is, I'm not going to overtrain in life. Cause I overtrained in rowing at one point saw that I didn't like that, what that was doing to me. And so then changed some things to make sure that I could bring myself back to function, proper function, optimal function. 
And then to apply those same concepts in life now, I go, okay, I need to step back on my priorities. And, you know, ever since I discovered rowing health is huge on that list and helping other people find that is huge on that list. So that's where I find myself today where I said, okay, that's enough. I'm going to step back and do these things instead because they have far more value and I can live a much more balanced life. Thank you. But before we bring Asante on. Thank you for taking the time, by the way. It'll take. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, I love this. It's great. One of the things that I've wanted to do for years, and now that I'm home, I've been able to, we'll talk offline, but I've been able to put together a couple of things that I never would have done. Same, same general routine. Yeah. It's, it's just, you know, all these things I'm like, Oh, I need to do X, Y, and Z right now. This is the perfect time (laughs) to do it. It's like, you know what? Do those things that you keep saying you're going to do. Have you ever heard of this fellow, James Altucher? He's got a pretty successful. Well, the last name. Yeah. And I, um, does he have a wife that is literary agent maybe, or something like that? Or it's just maybe a common last name. Maybe yeah. I don't know what it's I right recognize there. the last name. Yeah, but he. Hello, Asante. Hi, good to meet you too. It's always good to have a, a cane on board. I so, know. What if well, that's such a funny coincidence? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> that that's completely <laughs> random, but I'm glad. I want uh, you know. I've talked to each of you individually, and of course, we'll take a few minutes and you know just let y'all chat and get acquainted. But as you know, I was just talking to Asante about 15 minutes ago, and to you know, Lindsay, just five minutes ago. And if I got this right, neither one of you started out playing the sport that you ended up, you know, excelling or becoming the elite athlete. And, but you both played basketball. That was where you thought that's where your passion was, correct? So how old were you when you started playing football then? I didn't start playing football until freshman year in high school. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, Oh, gosh, I, I started playing basketball when I was in third grade. I was, you know, that lanky, I was that tall girl. So, of course, you're going to play basketball. Plus, oh, of it, course. Was, you know, it was the 80s at the time. So, there, it was easy. You could go for the YMCA on the weekend, and it was a really easily accessible sport in my hometown, for sure. When did you start getting into rowing? I actually didn't start rowing till I was 20. I was, um, oh, wow. Yeah, spring semester of my junior year is when I started. And uh, I didn't tell Thomas, but I, I was actually out of all the women that have out of all the women, I say that like there are that many, there's like a dozen women that have ever won a gold medal for the United States in rowing. And, um, my teammates and I were the first actually, and I was the oldest to pick it up. And Mm. I was also one of the smaller people on the team. So it's, you know, it's that I didn't really observe it in the moment. I think it's more of like a reflection on like, Oh, right. That was actually pretty average. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. What's it feel like to win gold? You know, uh, something that came up the other night when um, we were talking about having in-person contact and what it would be like to play sports without an audience and all that kind of stuff. It got my wheels turning about how rowing is is incredibly isolated. Like you, you know, you don't train in a team boat. You train in small boats. So you're either in a single by yourself or with one other person in a pair and you're on a lake. So it's this pristine environment where you're, you know, the next closest people other than the people in your boat are, you know, 20, 30, 40 feet away from you at minimum. And uh, so you spend a lot of time isolated and you spend a lot of time in your own thoughts and really just internally focused, which is what you need. You would want to be isolated for all of your training. And then when you show up at the Olympic games, 
the and you have like 30 or 40,000 people screaming down a tunnel it becomes a completely different environment you know just you can literally feel the energy of everything and i so like i can only imagine what i mean what's 100,000 in like giant stadium and in some of those bigger football stadiums what that feels like it's it's interesting with the olympics because it is that pinnacle for all athletes even if your sport's not in it when we got to our race and we ended up ultimately winning it we had won the world championships before so we'd been on the podium had the same people hand us medals listen to the anthem had the flag raised when they put an Olympic medal around your neck and you realize how much bigger and heavier it is and the woman that gave me the medal you know she they actually give you your medal first and then shake your hand on purpose I do. Anita de France. She's actually, she is, I believe she's currently a vice president of the IOC. She's, I mean, she is like a legend, not just in rowing, but in Olympic circles, like period. Um, Mm. She's been a first many, many times for the International Olympic Committee. So that was quite an honor to have her. And she, she basically, like, she raced. Um, she has a bronze medal from 1976 and, you know, she has done many, many, many great things for women's sports, international sports, Olympic sports. And, um, you know, she looked at us and called us superheroes and I'm looking at her thinking, my, my God, are you kidding me? Like, (laughs) do you know who you are? You know, she's like the type of person that walks in a room and she doesn't walk, she floats, you know, that's the kind of ethereal presence that she carries, (laughs) Yeah. And she, you know, she looks me in the eye and as she's putting my medal over my neck, she goes, your life is forever changed. And it was like that fairy godmother twinkling moment and my whole body just started shaking and I started bawling, (laughs) you know, and I was holding it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and, and where I actually end the book is there's, um, a friend of mine that I've known since I was very young said to me when I, went and met up with her after I got home and she says, you know, Lindsay, this is just a social validation of the person you've always been. Mm, And, uh, yeah, I think that that's something that we don't realize that I was actually just talking to some people on a call just ahead of this one where, um, they were talking about personality types and I, something I randomly said, you know, one of them said something about that being typical of the exceller mindset. I, I said that, I feel that every human being has the exceller mindset is an exceller. You just have to find your outlet for it. And I lucked out in that very serendipitously found me. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Wow. Intense. Asante, what, yeah. what was, thank you for oh, sharing. Oh, it gives me that. chills to I just think about it. Like <laughs> Asante, what's the most electric game you ever played in and what, what stands out to you and what did it feel like and how big was the crowd? And- wow. The most electric was my, I played in bigger stadiums. Like the biggest stadium I ever played in was my freshman year at Ohio state. And it was like 110,000 people there. But the most electric was my rookie year when I was with the 49ers and we were playing Seattle at Seattle. And they always talk about like the 12th man, the crowd noise there. And it was probably like 75,000 people there. But that stadium was just rocking. And that 
that feeling is just unmatched being in an opposing stadium I, with me being on offense when I'm on the field, they're at their loudest. So it's just more uh, togetherness with your teammates knowing it's like, it's really, it feels like us against the world right now. Yeah. That really resonates with me. <laughs> was it, was it overcast? No, it was a night game. Uh, oh, okay, I think okay. it's, it started off like kind of setting, but it, it wasn't that typical Seattle weather. Yeah. The only reason I ask is because I, you know, I feel like there's something about with cloud cover, it kind of holds in the noise even more, you know, almost like a, an oh, acoustic. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. what, Ooh, what was the score I, of that we, game? I want to say we lost 24 to 14. We lost that one. <laughs> Did you win or lose? <laughs> and what about the other way? The, the biggest game you ever won or the biggest moment you had catching the pass or blocking? Uh, I'd say out? the biggest game was probably like the most electric game that we ended up winning was my my senior year in college. We were playing North Carolina at North Carolina. At that point, we were undefeated. We were 6-0. It was a blackout game, so they were wearing all black. Their fans were wearing all black. We were in there wearing all white. And it came down to a, a two-minute drive for us to win the game where typically in two-minute drills, it's a lot of passing. But at the same time, we were trying to eat up clock. So we were just running the ball from like the 11-yard line all the way down to the end zone. And it was just one of those hard nose, just grind it out, and we like pulled it off. And how long did the buzz uh, after the win last? About oh, a couple hours. Uh, on the whole flight back home, you're feeling pretty good, but then then the pressure is to remain undefeated. So mm. we we have to lock back in every week. You can't you can't think about the previous <laughs> win too long because you got another task at hand. Yeah, and Lindsay after. You know, gold was one gold. I'll let you know. I'll let you know. (laughs) (laughs) When it stops. (laughs) You know, know, it's it's interesting because they always talk about well-being and experiences. Not only can you, you have the event itself, but then you have the memory of it. And it's such an indelible memory because you don't race that often. Like we train and train and train and train and train. And even if you race every important, I say important loosely, uh, uh, international event in a season, you might race four times in an, in a year because there, there are three world cups every summer and one world championships. And then every fourth year there's one Olympic games. So at most you'll race four times a year. And so when you have those moments, they're incredibly intense. And, um, you know, when, when you Asante were saying about the, you know, having to be more together as a team, in our Olympic final specifically, we knew that it would be so loud for the last you know minute or so of the race that we wouldn't be able to hear what our coxswain was actually saying. There's a whole wired speaker system in the boat so that we can all hear what she says. Oh, yeah, and so that's how that's how she communicates. And so that. the role of the coxswain during a race really is that she there's only one event at the olympics that has a coxswain in it the rest have no coxswain she inserts herself in your mind as that little person that gets in there right before you have that moment of oh dear i am done you know and right before you have that speck of doubt in your brain over time she comes to really know where it's like this is where i need to have this happen and i'm going to distract that <laughs> when wow. i can i can tell you rowing i I mean, before I started rowing, I was 
not, I hated running my whole life. Right. So endurance sports were not for me. I was so unfit that a speed walker walked past me the first time I ever tried to run a 5k. So to get to the point at the Olympics where I could push myself, I was so fit and so strong and could also push myself to the point that I couldn't hear anything. So even as we're barreling down the race course, my ears are ringing because my blood is everywhere else, right? They don't, I don't need to hear to go fast that this just cocoon of complete, you know, the crowd yelling from both sides, she had turned the speaker system all the way up, but the crowd was so deafening. All that you could hear was the plan was to bang on the side of the boat to make sure that we stayed together. So once we hit this like critical 20, you know, 250 meters last eighth of the race, she literally slapped the side of the boat so that we could feel the vibrations of it because hearing was not an option at that point. And, you know, I remember in that specific moment, normally you're just flowing and your body is just doing its thing. But when she hit the boat, I kind of came to for a second for like first time in several minutes. And my first thought other than yes and more, because that's all you can think was gold and it switched to gold. And then, I mean, I was, I was done. Like my legs are flopping like fish. There's nothing there. But I, I remember having the specific thought of, I will not let my teammates down. You've come that far. And in that moment, you're like, my whole body is done. I mean, there, there have been races where I felt like my teeth fell out like this <laughs> hard to push myself that you have that one cognitive yeah. thought because, you know, there's that unifying, I mean, everything's a unifying moment, but like in that moment, you're able to muster the, I will not let them down. <laughs> yeah. I've always wondered that. I, I was just going to say, I've heard I was you. telling Tom earlier, okay, when I think of what, like rowing, the word that comes to mind is strain because like you said, the coxswains, the only person who really knows how much further you guys have to go while the rest of the group is just pushing themselves as hard as they can. So it's just that strain of having to give it all you got and not knowing how much more you have to go. Yeah. And not, and you can't see your competitor. So you don't have any idea. I mean, the, you can see, you can sort of see, I guess, if you're peripheral vision, I, some, you know, the, the more, the younger you are, people typically, or I shouldn't say typically, but sometimes you'll find that people do look out of the boat. You don't have the energy to look out of the boat. If you are so focused, you literally cannot waste that physical effort because win or lose, the race is about a mile and a quarter long and races are win and lost by a, a, an inch. You know, I mean, they'll take a photo finish and have to stretch it out to the point that the picture looks so distorted. And even then at the Olympic games, they've had dead heats where even with a stretched picture, they cannot tell who won over a mile and a quarter. And that's know? over a mile. Wow. Yeah. How um, fast is the, you know, if you were to sprint, <laughs> you'd have to, <laughs> you, you wouldn't be able to keep up very long. Um, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> so over, so it's 2000 meters, which is basically if you run on a track, it's five laps on the standard, you know, 400 meter track. The women's world record is, is right around five minutes and 54 seconds. The men's world. And that's in the, that's in the, that's in the eight specifically. So every boat has a different, a different record, but for the fastest boat that's out there. The men are, I believe, right around five minutes, 18 seconds. So it's it's a fast sprint um, if you're running. <laughs> yeah. I, I know that Mythbusters did a thing a long time ago with, um, with a decent, not top, top, top men's college eight, but they were able to pull a water skier. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. So enough power there to pull a water skier. Wow. I'm going to interrupt for just one second. You know, I was telling Asante earlier, my mm-hmm. quiet room in the back is subject to construction. And the pandemic, uh, which we'll get mm. to in a bit, mm-hmm. obviously, but the one constant <laughs> is the leaf blower. <laughs> And they've just started with the leaf blowers outside, so I apologize. So what you're saying is if I want to top up my water, I should do it really quickly. (laughs) (laughs) You know, know, what I like about, uh, what interested me about getting the two of us, or the three of us, and the two of you together is, you each have overcome adversity and challenges, injuries and the like, to get to the top and to the pinnacle. I don't mean to turn the, the, the conversation dark, but I'm going to, because I think this is where the real you know, heart and soul comes out. And Asante, <laughs> there's a story that comes out every year around Christmas about you. Oh, uh, can, yeah. Can you tell that story for us, please? Yeah, so it was there. when I was in New England, uh, I had been promoted off the practice squad. I had spent 10 weeks on practice squad and then the first game I was active uh, was just after Thanksgiving. And so I was playing for these past like three or four weeks. Christmas come and this week we're getting ready to play against the Jets. And at that time, their offense was primarily four wide receivers. And we had a lot of DBs that were hurt. Essentially, we needed another DB. So... I was at uh, Christmas dinner with some teammates who didn't have family in town. It was uh, Brian Stork, who was a, a Florida State guy, uh, Jimmy Garoppolo, Cam Fleming, and other guys who didn't have family in town. We had just sat down for dinner, said prayer, we were starting to eat, and then I got a, uh, a call from a 508 number unregistered, pretty random at this time. So I answered it, and it was Coach Belichick. <laughs> I hear his voice and he's like, uh, Hey, Asante, we're going to have to make some roster moves. And <laughs> from my experience in the NFL, that means that I'm about to be moved from the roster. <laughs> so I get up, we talk about it. Uh, it was, we just essentially just needed another DB that they were going to have to sign me back to practice squad uh, for this game. And then he would bring me back up going into the dolphins week. He, he like reassured me in no way were they trying to move away from me as a player or anything like that. It was just for this game out of necessity. I go back to the dinner table, like the mood's a little different now, <laughs> but, <laughs> but so they go in, they play the jets. And then the way the waiver wire works was I wasn't, the Christmas was on a Friday. So I wasn't able to re-sign to practice squad until that Monday at one o'clock or four o'clock. So I go back into the facility and before I can re-sign out that I've been claimed off waivers by the Eagles and the Chargers. The next day I have to fly out the, the Chargers end up claiming me because they had a worse record. But uh, in an instant, I was no longer a Patriot and I had to go fly out to the Chargers with the Christmas day message. Yeah. Christmas day message. <laughs> yeah, every, every Christmas bleacher report puts out a, uh, a post about it. <laughs> and, and... <laughs> yeah. Just, just in case you, just in case you forgot. So what'd you feel like? I mean, legit. I mean, I've known you a while. What'd you feel like when through that period well, it was, of Christmas and then the it was frustrating at first, 
I had a feeling that I wouldn't have that big of a role going into that game, just the way that the practice week was playing out. But the thing was, I, I knew that they weren't moving away from me because I'd really proven myself throughout the year. I, they liked me. So I was really just hoping that nobody would claim me. So going into that weekend, I knew that the Eagles needed a tight end and they were playing the Redskins. So it was like, if the Eagles won, that meant that they would have made the playoffs and then they would probably claim me. They ended up losing that game. So I say there's nothing to worry about. And then still they ended up claiming me, but then the chargers out of nowhere claimed me. I, when I first got to San Diego, to I, San Diego, I quickly realized how different the new England way was just how the culture was so much different than any other team. <clears throat> when uh, normally when we would do practice, special teams, punt drill, if you were the scout team, like the look team for the punt return, you would do your punt protection and then go run and cover for 15, 20 yards to San Diego. Uh, I don't know anything. So they put me out there for the scout team drill. I do my pump protection and I go run and cover 15 yards and I look around and see that no one else ran with me. And it was at that moment that I realized that, Oh, this must be a really bad team because Bill <laughs> wouldn't have gone for that at all. <laughs> and I realized uh, after practice, I went and looked at the record wow. and they were four and 11 and I was coming from the best team in the league. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Quite a change in, Lindsay, you're a, you coach and you've been involved. What, what do you think about coaching style and the impact on, you know, on the team or the individual performance <laughs> and the yeah. nice guy versus the guy who yells at you all the time? I've seen them all. The woman who, <laughs> especially, how does that, I say that there is no coach like a middle school basketball coach, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I, that's actually yeah. something that I yeah. write very specifically yeah. about in the book now that I've, I've spent much more time editing it is that I realized as I really scoured my memory and old notes and things like that, that throughout my, my growing up playing sports, you know, I told you that I started playing, gosh, I, you know, started swimming when I was, a, you know, two, you know, um, but, uh, when I started playing basketball, I was in third grade and I had all these, these coaches that came into my life who, the ones that left the biggest marks were the ones that I really admired and looked up to that I thought, wow, they seem really cool. They seem really like they know a lot and they seem really positive. I just remember the ones with the smiles and that doesn't mean they weren't necessarily talkative. They weren't necessarily all talkative, but they were you know, really deliberate in the things that they did. One of the reasons, not I think I know, one of the reasons why I did not think basketball was the sport for me or that I wasn't good enough to play a sport after high school was because I did have a lot of basketball coaches that yelled a lot and threw you around and told you that you weren't doing X, Y, and Z, you know, lo and behold, we study all of those coaching styles and we know that negative punishment, even positive punishment, any type of punishment or focusing on the negative things um, is not the way to, to help people excel um, there's even psychology out there that suggests that when you focus on what someone is doing correctly, the negative behavior takes care of itself because people want to please. And so even if it's just the one 
thing that might not be central to you know what the team needs in that moment you know that someone is doing they start to do more and more of that thing and less of the behaviors that you you don't want from them when i found rowing the sport itself teaches you a lot and it's it's a sport that you the way that it works at every level is there's no hand holding you have to start to figure things out on your own you have to show your desire to improve before you start to get some advice rowing is one of those sports that seems incredibly simple and and it is incredibly simple once you realize how simple it is but you know if you think about swimming it seems like a stroke there aren't plays there aren't all these other things you have to remember and it takes a lot of meters and miles of just focusing on a few individual parts and so to go from you know basketball coaches that are yelling and saying you're not doing x y and z to um, rowing coaches who are giving you only periodic pieces of advice that you then take like it's the most important thing you've ever heard even if it's like put your pinky here (laughs) (laughs) and you focus on that thing until you go a little faster somehow and then they give you some Mm -hmm. other piece of advice when i was i know i can tell you when i was in high school one of the reasons why volleyball became the sport that I fell in love with the most in high school, even though I played basketball a lot longer and basketball was my main sport was for a a coach that came in and basically had to step back and learn how to do the basics incredibly well. She never yelled. She just gave us feedback, you know, and she was a a very positive person, but she was the type of person that, you know, in a game, she's not going to sit there and yell about whatever play that we're doing. She literally would sit on the bench with her notebook and rate every pass that we made as a zero, one, two, or three. And so, and then our serves, how, how we each, so that after every game, it was, okay, it's clear that these are our strengths and weaknesses as a team. This is how these individual people are doing. So then, you know, so then she could go and yeah, I mean, it, it, and, and gosh, I mean, I still talk to her. Money know, ball before money That ball. really struck me as a, such a stark contrast to what I had grown up with through other sports that just the fact that she never yelled, let alone gave us concrete evidence of what we were improving upon or, you know, weren't. Yeah, yeah. So. Sante, what do you think about that? You started to compare and contrast New England versus San Diego. Uh, coaching styles, you know, they yelled at versus. Uh, you know, well, for me personally, I've the had a lot of coaches that have things? done both, both that either head coach, offensive coordinator, and then all the way down to the position coaches. In New England, there, Bill didn't really yell much at all. It was it's a general understanding of you know what you have to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, the what I loved the most about New England was when I first got there, they made it very clear of why they wanted me and what they thought I could bring to the table. Whereas you get to other places and your role isn't clearly defined and you just kind of spread your energy in as many different places as you can, as opposed to them saying like, Hey, we need you to focus on doing the dirty work. Uh, you're going to do a lot of, moving around, we're going to need you on special teams. And it's like, okay, I know what I have to focus on. When you talk about focusing on the positive, that's what I felt like I got a lot more of in New England, just focusing on here's, here's what you do good. Here's how I can help you do that better. Mm -hmm. That was very beneficial. Yeah. 
you know, when I, um, when I first started rowing, my college rowing coach, I send him a, I send him a thank you letter every year on his birthday, not a birthday card, a thank you card. Uh, but he, um, one thing that he does incredibly well, that is incredibly unique within the NCAA is that he can get a group of people to believe that they can do anything. You know, I mean, my, he just has that conviction and belief in possibility that just is instilled upon you and that no matter where you go, you, there's always a little more that you can find, you know, and it's not, you don't have to find it all at once. Okay. You've come that far. There's more in there, you know, so let's go find it. And, um, he was incredibly good at getting a group of people on board with that message. And, you know, the first year that I rode when I was in college, we lost every single race my senior year in college until our regional championship, which we won outright and then went on to be, you know, fifth in the country. Physically, we were actually shorter, you know, our physical strength, you know, we our 2K scores, which would basically be like our, you know, sprints and things like that, our times <laughs> were much slower than most of our competitors. And yet we, you know, passed a lot of them. And I attribute a lot of that to like, we were on board. And so, yeah, we weren't tall. Yeah, we weren't strong, but we were really, really mentally tough and driven toward this thing that we were doing together. And that was something that I definitely picked up in college that was, or that I picked up when I started rowing that um, was imprinted upon me that I then fell in love with the sport, my team, and then going for something, um, that was just the next step greater than that, you know, alongside this group of people that were rallied behind this cause. Asante, when were you injured? Uh, I had you my had first, first surgery in was, England, I or? tore my labrum in mm. college, my freshman year. And I had to have surgery on that. But then the last injury I had was going into camp with the chargers uh, after we had first moved up to LA and it was, they always say that everything could change in like one play. You can get hurt on any given play. So play mm-hmm. every play, like it's your last stuff like that. And it was such a, just a freak incident where I was running a route. Uh, I planted and broke towards the middle. And right when I took that step, mm-hmm. I knew something was wrong and no one hit me or anything like that. It was non-contact. But I just knew, okay, I I did something wrong, and found out that I tore my meniscus. Oh, that was so. So that was the year before. As well, or? well, it I, it was kind of. I think it was that was not connected to this. So I, okay, the year I'm before, uh, when I was living in San Diego, I was walking across the street to get ramen from my apartment building. It was like nine o'clock on a Sunday. As I'm cross, crossing the street this SUV makes this left turn and just comes barreling at me. It's like, as, as a pedestrian, a lot of times you have the hubris of like, they're not going to hit me. Yeah. As I, (laughs) as it got closer, I'm starting to realize, all right, this isn't a bluff. So I end up jumping into the car. I remember like hitting my head, like kind of spinning around in the air and then landing. And then next thing I watching the car like speed off and make a right. Wow. I felt fine. Uh, the biggest damage that I noticed was I scraped my hand up real bad. And then I felt like my knee was banged a little bit. But from that, I realized that I ended up having a concussion as well. 
And then a year, like less than a year later, that was the knee that I ended up tearing. So I do think there was probably a connection to that. The reason I asked, and we'll get back to it in a second, yeah, yeah, Lindsay, and I want to be I think that they call that being time, hit by a car, a car, not, uh, a not a car accident. <laughs> you, yeah. you were hit by a car. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Lindsay, I listened to one of your, mm-hmm. something that you had said about going injury-free for a very long time, talk about an injury that if you had a significant one at some point, but really I want to talk about diet and so overall which health you and like how you guys each approach it and you know, what you've learned over the years. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, I was actually able to go injury free for a, a, a long time. Um, I watched a lot of teammates, pretty much every one of my teammates had something happen at some point or another during my first Olympic cycle. And the more that I saw them say my back, this, or my rib, this, um, you know, I, I was like, well, what is going on here? I have no idea what that feels like. And so I came to practice before everybody else and warmed up longer than everybody else and stayed later to take care of myself, to prevent a lot of those things. Um, so I was able to make it through my first Olympic cycle. I, I hurt my shoulder doing a drill in practice one day and it felt like an eternity, but it was six days and it was six days where I just cross trained. You know, I was, I was out for six, out of the boat for six days. I still could lift weights. I could still run. I could still bike. And then I even took an ERG test. So I did a a test within six days and, and set a personal record on it. So in the grand scheme, what felt like an eternity was in fact a matter of, of days, but you know, isn't that what it is where uncertainty of injury where you're like this, this could be, I could be fine tomorrow. Oh, it's no bit, you know, this will, this will go away. If I just do these things and take care of myself, it'll eventually go away. And so you could wake up the next day and it could be worse. You could wake up the next day and it could be better. You could be wake up the next day with no change. And I did ultimately go through injury, but after the Olympics, and that was kind of what gave me my very clear understanding of overtraining and doing too much too soon. And, um, you know, because when you decide to train for a second Olympic Games, your psychology is much more experienced. And when you look at new people coming in, you're like, I am not going to let this person beat me, even though they're exponentially more fit than you, because you have just spent, you know, two or three months hanging out, (laughs) you know, like you're taking some time because you've just been, you know, fully immersed in this situation for so long. You're like, okay, I'm going to step away and then come back, get back into it. And, uh, that's when I ran into issues was when I came back and started doing too much too soon and, uh, still wouldn't let people, (laughs) didn't want people to beat me. And, ultimately was able to kind of miraculously come do better than I should have given my level of fitness. And so then I ended up with um, a couple of stress fractures on my vertebrae and some bulging discs and things like that. Um, yeah. And so then when you, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was 20, yeah, uh, yeah I was 26 and I couldn't put on my that, own shoes. That's serious stuff. I couldn't bend over to put on my own shoes when I was 26 it, yeah. or 27, I guess. And that's, that's actually where the second book is, is that portion of the story where I became invincible when I was 26 and I couldn't put on my own shoes when I was 27. Now, how did you feel that? Were you no, thinking definitely this is never going to get better? Or were you because I had teammates who were far worse. Of you know, they were people with herniations better. and people with full breaks and they had had surgeries and there were just a lot of problems that were far worse than that, that I was just like, huh. But I tell you what ultimately caused me to retire was for me, 
or caused, caused me to retire for the first time before I got back into it was that I wasn't surrounded by the same team anymore. So a lot of the individual people had changed. And so this kind of um, levity that we had along, you know, inside the training center, as I was kind of growing up through it, through my first Olympic cycle, all of a sudden I, um, when you overtrain it, it messes with you psychologically, um, let alone physically. And usually the psychological things happen first before you actually physically get hurt. You usually get sick. You usually start to you know, question the meaning of life and those types of things long before you actually get physically injured. And I remember going to my coaches and here I was at the time I was 26 by the, or 27, sorry, by the time I actually started before I got hurt. And I just said to them, something is wrong and I don't know what it is because the psychology was happening first where, you know, I didn't feel the need to be nice to people anymore. I'm an innately optimistic, smiley, talkative, happy, happy person. I would finish a workout and just start crying, you know, and I didn't, you know, feel the need to talk to people as much. And so all of those things were taking place simply because I jumped in and was doing too much right away rather than taking things on gradually. So that has actually allowed me to have a lot of perspective on a life now, but also you can't rush the process. Dang. How old were you when your career, however you, I was 20, I was 29 when I decided to ultimately step career, out of it. Competitive um, career. and I was, let's see. So that was 2010 by 2014, my teammates and I were actually inducted into the national rowing hall of fame. And on that weekend, after enough time, I I'd, I'd gotten into coaching and, and the interesting thing is when you're still young <laughs> and you, and you're coaching, I was thinking to myself, my gosh, I'm doing a lot of the training with the athletes that I was working with at the time. And I was like, I'm still really good at this. So I got the bug to get back into it. What I ultimately found was that I enjoyed helping others far more than I felt the need to go again. And that's how I, that's how I ended up um, ending, you know, getting my master's in exercise physiology and doing what I do now. Um, we kind of know that like, you know, you taste it once, it doesn't taste the same. There's, it's kind of like resets your, your threshold for, yeah, for what it is. And, and everything after the gold has, is, well, is now more meaningful. Like all the other things are now more meaningful for me. Oh yeah. yeah. And, yeah. I, and I want to apologize. Yes. Professional nope, I, absolutely. Yes, you work in, you, you, go, you go to practice, you go to work, go back to practice, <laughs> you figure out a way. Yeah, yeah. And the thing is, is yeah. you, like you train, you literally, and this is not travel to and from physical therapy, <laughs> warm up, yeah, cool yeah. down. I mean, we would literally row 200 kilometers a week, which is somewhere around, you know, between lifting and running and rowing, you're doing at least 30 hours of physical exertion a week. Wow. Uh, not including all the other things around that. How's that compared actually, to actually uh, on the field? We had a two hour practice on the field or in the gym like or running or... four times. We had four practices a week. We lifted three times a week. What we spent the most time doing, we're in meetings all day Yeah, I was gonna from, say. from like seven in the morning. Uh, it starts off, we have special teams meeting, then we break up into a team meeting, then we go into offense, defense, then we go into position meetings, and then we practice. Then, yeah, then lunch, lift, and then you go back into meetings to watch the practice. And it's definitely a full-time job. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, it's, it's definitely a full-time job. I mean, it, 
you know, I always tell people that you don't, you don't jump in immediately and do a ton right away. Our first day of practice, we, we, when I first started, we cleaned the boathouse and rode basically 20 or 30 minutes. But, you know, by as, as year, as you get closer to the Olympics and as, you know, shoot after one, my first year, you know, you get to the boathouse at, you know, six or so in the morning, you might leave by noon because you have a couple sessions in the morning. And then there was a period of time where we had to be back by one thirty for our afternoon session. So we trained three times a day and usually lifted three or four days a week. And we had two afternoons off a week. Sometimes, sometimes we would train seven days, um, more often six, but if you were off on the seventh day, you usually went for a run or did something. Asante, so you're in San Diego. You had the injury. Five. How old are you at that point? 26. I was 26. Yeah. You're 25. How long before 26? So How long I didn't you realize until that next yeah. year. This so I, when I tore my meniscus, I had the option of either having it taken out and that being a recovery. But they also describe that as basically buying arthritis because it's mm-hmm. a guarantee at that point. Or I could have it repaired, and that would be a six-month recovery for me that would place me on IR. So I elected to have it to be put on IR and have my knee uh, try to get it repaired. So I spent all of IR basically working out, trying to become as strong as I could, because my mentality was I'm going to come back and be the best blocking tight end in the NFL. So that's where all my energy was being directed. Free agency came around that next March. The The Patriots called me. They were interested. They wanted to sign me, so they flew me out. I did an MRI. I talked with the coaches, went over uh, getting a re, re-getting a feel for the team. And when I got back to the hotel that night, uh, my agent called me saying that they weren't going to sign me based off my knee hadn't recovered. Uh, the the repair didn't take. So that's when it kind of started to hit me that there's a chance that I may never play again. Because I, I flew out there thinking, like, I'm getting ready to go play on a Super Bowl team and all that to quickly realizing, like, this may be it. Yeah. Lindsay, one of the things that uh, and I, I think I, if I haven't said this to you, Sante, I'll mm-hmm. say it now. The thing that impresses me is, you know, so he goes from thinking he's going to play on a Super Bowl team to I'm out. And I, Asante, I don't ever think I've heard you say a negative or down word ever. And that's impressive and motivational. And it made me think and look back and, you know, reinventing myself after 50, that sort of thing. And it's, it was inspiring for me to see you go through, you know, this, this big up and then boom, it's over. And Lindsay, the little bit I know of you and just, you know, our short conversation of yep. what I've read. Yeah. I mean, you as well going through, you know, elite, the very top, and then it stops. It, so, I would, what, what's that like? What do you guys, what lessons, you know, would you, would you <laughs> like to, what does it make you before, think? I mean, if, you, if I'm the fly on the wall and you guys are talking about it, what are you, the Olympics. What are you saying about um, that? We'd actually won a couple of world championships. We set the world record. Like we actually started a streak of 11 years for the United States of winning the women's eight at the international level. We lost pretty badly the year before that started. But before we won in Beijing, my coach came up to me and we were in the dining hall. We were all, I was actually leaving dinner. So we were in the stairwell leaving the dining hall and he stops me and he was like, Hey, shoot, you know, 
what do you think about doing after this? And, you know, I said, I'm, I'm absolutely 100% coming back. I couldn't imagine myself doing anything else. And I went on to say, you know, now that I know a little bit of what to expect, you know, next time is, and he stopped me right there. And he said, you can never know what to expect. It's different every time. That was a little bit of that, like youthful, wow, look how far we've come. Like I was terrible, <laughs> you know, and, and within a matter of years had gone from zero to this incredible place that let, you know, I'll tell you when it wears off. <laughs> and yeah. And, and, uh, in that moment I was like, Oh, you know, and so no matter how much you think, you know, there is always something that you can't expect. That is actually something that all that you know is that it's going to be challenging and different and you might have more tools and a better psychological capacity to manage those things, but you can never 100% know how something is going to go. You can just prepare yourself as much as you possibly can to be better equipped to manage the stress when it comes, whether, no matter what kind of stress that is, whether it's physical or mental or, you know, whatever is going on around you in your life. That's, that's a huge piece of why I do what I do when it comes to general health for people outside of, of athletics, because anything that you can do to make yourself more physically robust, you will be along with that more mentally robust and therefore capable of managing any stress that comes your way um, than you would otherwise be had you not done, you know, some very honestly simple things um, to really take care of yourself, to prepare for those things that you can never know might happen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I, that definitely resonates with me. Yeah. yeah. You never know what's coming around the corner. For me, I, I'm glad you said that you've never heard me say anything negative about it, Tom. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> you have a good filter? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I've heard you plan. And I've heard, you know, but well, I, I've never, the lesson I, mean, I had yeah, to I'm learn, it was, but you're all, I you're got always that moving call forward. from my agent, it was, it was crushing. And like the next morning... I was, this is actually something I don't think I told you either, Tom. Uh, so the next morning I was flying out, uh, out of Logan back to Orange County, uh, definitely just feeling just super numb. I'm getting on the plane. I have, I have my tiger backpack and it has a whole bunch of bands around it. And for every stadium you go in, you get a wristband from like the security check. So my tiger backpack has a whole bunch of them. And so I'm putting my backpack in the overhead compartment and this lady right. behind me is like, you're one of the Patriots players, aren't you? And it's like, lady, this is not the time. <laughs> I, was, I, was like, I was like, no, 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 I'm not. She's like, yes, you are. Yes, you are. You're, you're one of my guys. And like, really, as I'm ready to turn around and like bite her head off, I turn around and realize that it's uh, Coach Belichick's girlfriend. And then I was like... <laughs> So she didn't mean just generally the Boston population, like yeah, love no, no. <laughs> <laughs> so so I so I told wow. her like what happened, and I was like no like no no no. So like the beginning of the flight, I just told her I was like no no I came here to sign and it didn't work wow. out. And then Did after she buy you a drink, talked about. I was like yeah, the doctor said this, and then we talked for a bit. And she's saying like. Bill understands, like, he doesn't like the doctors, and too, and all that stuff. Too. But yeah. after that, what I had to learn was the end of an era is not the end of the world. Yeah. There's one constant in life, and it's change. Yeah. So everything that you love will, 
everything has a beginning and everything's going to have an end. So being comfortable with what you did in between all of that and taking what you learned through that experience and moving that into your next endeavor. So that's what I had to learn. Yeah. You know, when you say that with the change, that's what human beings do, you know, having now studied physiology, it's like, Oh, right. People change. We adapt. That is literally what we're designed to do. And when you, you know, surround yourself with positive things, you're going to adapt in a positive way. But um, no matter what happens from one moment to the next, like your body is constantly in flux. You're all the way down to the molecular level, right? Your cells are dividing. You are constantly literally a different person every moment of the day. And you can psychologically guide yourself, you know, in the way that you want to adapt. There were two things that um, our coach said to us before we could really embrace the idea of full of really winning the Olympic games was um, preparation equals confidence. So the things that you do to prepare yourself, like I said, you can never know what's going to happen. You can, but you can prepare yourself as much as you possibly can, but also controlling what you can and ignoring the things that you have no control over. And that has been incredibly liberating where it's like, what can I actually do? Mm-hmm. Right. Rather than, you know, wasting my thought on this worry. And that's obviously easier said than done, but what can I actively do here? What can I be with whatever is going on? You can't control other people. You can't control other things that are, you know, everybody knows what it is that's beyond their actual control. But when you can kind of step back and frame it because that it really is that simple, it really does help your ability to kind of manage situations. I have one older brother, but I grew up with a bunch of boys. Yes. Lindsay, you mentioned to me earlier that you grew up with brothers, a bunch of boys. Uh, in the, in your you know, sport, I've found it, it more. So women's and rowing, racism, and I'll say this is it's unique sport because, and it's because football is your background. This is actually uh, because of Title Nine. Women's rowing mm. has women's rowing helps football. <laughs> Let's put it that way. It helps football. So as a result, women's rowing has grown in the NCAA. It's become huge in the NCAA, which has thereby helped rowing generally. And so because there's such uh, – there, there isn't support per se, <laughs> but there are numbers in the NCAA. So because it's grown in size, it's grown in, in competition, which has made it better. So the women on the international stage for the United States have, have grown to be pretty quite strong, male or female, when you think of the United States women's eight – People are like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, they, my teammates and I won in 2008. You know, there were 11 years of it not losing. And then they won in, you know, the, the women's eight won in 2012 and 2016. So there's this like strength in that. Um, now stepping outside of that and getting on the coaching side, working within the NCAA, it is predominantly male profession, even on the women's athletics side. You know, a piece of that that I find interesting is a, a lot of it has to do with just being, you know, a parent or in my case, preferring balance because there is this insane time demand when it comes to, you know, say being a head coach of an NCAA division one program. So as far as, you know, as far as that goes, I didn't, you know, experience that within my sport and within my experience while I was an athlete, at least not that I paid attention to. I think it also helps. Uh, I'm sure it helps being tall. I'm six feet tall, you know, I'm, I'm short for my sport, but I'm a large woman. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and when you walk into a room like that, kind of 
there's a, I think that there's a correlation, you know, with leadership and that sort of thing and, and height, you know, there's a reason why athletes tend to be public speakers and, and all of these things. So once I discovered growing in, it allowed me to grow in my confidence. Um, I personally did not experience that as much as I probably would have otherwise. And you have a book that's soon to be published. And I believe the title is better great than never. Yeah. The, so the, it's obviously a, it's a play on better late than never because I did pick up the sport so late. And the subtitle is believing it's possible is where champions begin. The idea that, mm-hmm. you know, no matter where you are at whatever point in your life, changing your mind and deciding to take it one decision at a time from there. The book is very much iterative of the step, the process and the one step at a time, you know, when I overtrained, you, you know, that, that, that is outside the scope of the book, but you know, when you get to a point and you do, you, you just want it all at once, it doesn't work that way. And the things that last the longest take the longest to get to in the first place, but the, but the better great than never, the idea that, you know, you, a, no matter how, no matter where you are, it is never too late to change things. It is never too late to change your mind and decide to change your course. And then once you are on that path, if you believe that you could do this incredible thing that might even initially, when you initially set on that course, seem beyond your realm of capability, whether you achieve it or not, if it's a tangible thing, you are going to be far better than you would have otherwise been because you trained and you put yourself in this position to focus wholly on this thing. So you made yourself so much better than you would have otherwise been had you not focused wholly on that thing. Another message in the book, a big one, is that I didn't win the Olympic Games because I wanted to win the Olympic Games. That was a byproduct of me wanting to become the best that I could possibly be rather than being where I was, which at the time that I found rowing, I was 30 pounds heavier than I'd ever been in my life. My grades were many points on a GPA scale lower than they'd ever been in my entire life. And I was on a path of, I just, I want to be happy, but I don't know what will take me there. And this is not what makes me happy. When I discovered rowing, it allowed me to better myself one day at a time, very, very slowly and methodically. And it was once I decided that I fell in love with the sport. I fell in love with my teammates, the support network that I grew into And it was always about how can I be better? And in that process, went through a lot of really low times. You know, I started at the bottom and worked my way up. And when things, you get knocked down, you get back up and you keep taking steps. And I, I was, there were, I mean, there were many times when I just lost, you know, from a, from a straight speed standpoint, right before the first year that I made a world championships team, I was making progress and it was like, oh, things are looking up. And then from one day to the next, almost just all of a sudden you lose so badly, you were just out of it completely. It's basically like I wasn't cut, but it was basically like, and now you are obviously at the bottom again, you know, even though you felt like you were making the whole world went on pause. And then, um, I mean, I got in my car after I got my carpooled with a teammate got in the car after practice on that very specific day and just broke down and was, my life is over. You know, I'm crying about all these things. And she looks at me and she was like, get it together, man. Like it's practice. We're going to come back later and do it again. You know? And, uh, uh, but to me, it was, it was me losing this thing that I loved so much that was allowing me to grow. And my brain went a million steps forward into just spiraling. I'll never be able to row again. It's like, I'm going to have to go home and have to find something else to do. Like, 
da, 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 this, this whole life that I was building toward was, I felt all of a sudden was being swept out from under me, you know, within a matter of weeks going, Oh, let me reframe this and step back from it. And the whole control what you can ignore, what you can't, I actually, within a matter of weeks of being literally the slowest person on the team, I became the fastest person to row my side of the boat in the country and raced in two events at the world championships. And then, you know, within, that was 2000, within three years of that, my teammates and I won, you know, we won, we became two time world champion, world record holding, and then Olympic champions within, you know, three years of literally feeling like my life was over. <laughs> and, and the, the, I was going to say that the last thing I'll say um, is that the, the reason people always ask, like, why did you keep, what wow. kept you doing that? You know. It was incredibly important to me. And that was the first decision was that it was allowing me to become better. And so it was incredibly important to me. It was innate to who I was. And so I fell in love with it. And it was the outlet for me to, to become great, you know? And, and um, that's why I say better great than never is that even if just, just putting yourself on that course and going for it, when you focus on it, that's way better. Even if you don't necessarily go as far, you know, it's better than never even knowing if you could have even gotten anywhere close to it and win or lose. As long as you learn, you can never actually lose. And that's the life lesson. You know, Lindsay Asante has a podcast. Uh, maybe tell us a bit about it, Asante, but perhaps when you, when the book is released. Yeah. Oh, you can come on in every day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so let me know. Day. I love that stuff. <laughs> okay, perfect. So me and a friend mm -hmm. have a podcast called the white tiger podcast where, um, I originally came on as a guest. I actually, uh, announced my retirement on this podcast. Uh, but his name is Craig Casaletto. He was a, a detective in New Jersey for 14 years, moved out here, and then wanted to maintain the service aspect of his uh, detective job. So we created a podcast. Mm -hmm. And the name behind it is back in the early 1900s, there was an entrepreneur from India who brought this white tiger to the States. Now, people had never seen a white tiger before. So this exhibit became really popular. They kept it in this 12 by 12 cage and people would come from all around to come view it. And it became so popular that they decided to move it to a bigger enclosure. But what they noticed was that even though this tiger had all this space to move around, it never really left the 12 by 12 footprint. Mm. So the name white tiger podcast comes from the doubts and the invisible cages that we put ourselves in, like what we, what holds us back. So we talked about uh, mindset, uh, having a positive mindset, uh, mm -hmm. creating successful habits. And then we talked to a lot of uh, retired athletes or people who are still playing mm -hmm. just because we feel like athletes truly understand like the ups and downs to get, uh, to be what it takes to become successful because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. a lot of people haven't learned how to lose. And I feel like mm -hmm. athletes, <laughs> we learn these lessons like over and over again. Yeah. You lose a lot. <laughs> you, you lose a lot. Yeah. But that's, that's the challenge of you, you know, that's the whole point. If you didn't lose, if you didn't get knocked down, that's how you weed out who really wants it. You know, if you're willing to yes. get back up, 
then that shows your importance, right? That the yes. more important it is to you, the more times you're willing to get back up. Yes, 100%. I have one final question. I'll ask the, the same question of each of you, and maybe we'll start with Asante, please. Is there a player, a player or let's say a competitor, mm. that you played with, against, or otherwise, that just didn't get the recognition. Mm. Underrecognized star. Well, it's funny that give a shout out to just tell us. One of the players who I felt was extremely talented, he has now gotten the recognition that I think his talent and just him as a person warrants. His name is Adrian Phillips. He was another undrafted guy. He he went to the Chargers out of Texas as a safety. But he was undrafted and was on practice squad, got called up to the active roster, brought back down to practice squad, and went through that whole cycle. But was always extremely accountable and worked hard. But these past few years, he worked his way up into being a full-time starter, and then he just got he just got paid by the Patriots to be on their team. So he's like the perfect person for that system, and he's just hardworking, accountable, and just a great player. All right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, my um, dear, 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 wonderful close friend, touch. Molly Baker is her name. Good. She – um, What about you, you know, I thought that you were going to leave it a little more open-ended, and I was going to say, gosh, there are a lot of people that I attribute a lot to. <laughs> no, no, no. Oh, sorry. This is sorry. the yeah. She no, she no, no. absolutely well, everybody everybody asked star. I mean, I she actually learned how to row in college as well, and we rowed together in college at the University of Virginia. Yeah. Um, she worked her way from basically the bottom, bottom, bottom. Um, she is we're basically spot on the same height. She's a little skinnier than I am, built more like a runner, and no matter what she did, just never kind of gained muscle. Oh, she never looked the part, right? And for all intents and purposes, I didn't really look the part either, but she was just the most relentless racer and being able to race with her in college Mm -hmm. patterned that in me. And I basically, whenever she sat in the front of the boat and set the rhythm for the boat, rhythm just makes you more efficient, you know, and, and when you can become more efficient, you go faster (laughs) and you can be super strong, but if you get in the boat and you're inefficient, you're not going to go very fast. And whenever she sat in the front, the boat went so fast, no matter what boat it was. And so I knew that whenever I sat with her, I didn't have to know what she was doing. I just needed to do whatever it was that she was doing. And that carried through. She ended up training with me uh, in Jersey, in New Jersey, when I first started training with the national team and she was there for the first two years, she made it to one world championships. And then basically was kind of nudged out of the group after that, but she is someone that I attribute an awful lot to. And without her, I, we would not have won, you know, and that's, I think the interesting thing about rowing is that unless you are in the boat, you don't get a medal. You know, if you sub in for two minutes on a, you know, on a different team, or if you run a leg in a relay, or if you swim a leg in a relay, you get the medal, even if you don't race it, that's not the case in rowing. And so there are people who played critical roles in us being faster who have zero recognition whatsoever. Um, and, and Molly is a huge, huge, huge one of those people. She actually runs the Summer Language Institute at Middlebury. Um, she, she works in academics. What is she doing now? Um, but, you know, she, I, I actually, I just, she's one of my best friends from college. And there were three of us that were kind of, you know, really close in college. And we, we stay in touch. Um, so, 
Ja. Ja. You guys both been really generous with your time, and I could talk for hours. And I, I hope that I hope that when the life gets back to whatever normal yeah, is going to be, to we all land in the same city. <laughs> yeah. That we can、uh, have a meal and、uh, yes, sit and chat、yes. in person. That would be really nice.